We're starting a new series today, a new preaching series called Walking in the Dust. And it's all about radical discipleship. It's all about getting closer to, to Jesus, this person called Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago to, to understand his ways and to follow him in the ways that he lived. I've been a disciple for nearly 20 years, a follower of Jesus. And I can say that I'm as excited today about being a follower of Jesus now as I was when I was 17 and I first committed my life to following this person, Jesus of Nazareth. I really want to learn to live more like Jesus. I want to get closer. I want to understand him. I want to see how he does things. I want to understand why he does things. I want to work alongside him. In, in my life today, and I want to get better at doing the things that he does. I want to know what it means when Jesus said, if anyone has faith in me, he will do the works that I do, and even greater works than this will they do. I want to know what that means. I want to know what it is to take Jesus at his word when he says things like that. There's so much about him that I have, have come to know and come to love and, and been captivated by, but there's, there's also so much about him that I feel like I'm just starting to scratch the surface. I feel like I'm right at the beginning of my understanding of who this Jesus from Nazareth is. And that's partly because he was a first century Jew, and I'm a 21st century Christian living in a very different part of the world. So his world was so different and it's hard sometimes to understand his context, but it's not impossible. It's easier to understand his context now than it was even 50 years ago, because we understand so much more about what life was like in first century Israel. And I want to just plug a couple of books to you. Um, first one's this one, which is kind of where we've stolen the title of our series from. It's Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. This is a, a great book and I want to recommend it. It's going to be on the bookstore over there. You can buy it after this um, and order more copies through Roy and Pam. This book is a great book at understanding the Jewishness of Jesus. His whole, the whole Jewish structure, that, what, what it meant to be a rabbi living in that culture at that time. Because there's so much of, of Jesus' words that just, just begin to leap off the page when you understand the, the, the religious world that Jesus lived in. And this is another one. This one you might have to save up for because it's quite expensive. This is by Jose Pagola. And it's Jesus and historical approximation. Now that sounds like it might be a little bit dry. You might be thinking, mm, I'm not sure I'm up for a big thick book called About History. But actually this is a fascinating book. This was recommended to me by the principle of Spurgeon's. And this has done my devotional life the world of good. It's basically a study on the sort of social and relational context that Jesus lived in. It really gets deeply into what life was like, what it felt like to be a person that, that was listening to Jesus' message. What were the kind of pressures they were under? What, what were the things that hurt them? What were the things that brought them joy? And uh, it, it's just a wonderful way to step into the world of Jesus. Because when you can step into his world, you get closer to him and you can understand him in such a deeper way. So, two books, highly recommended. You might want to club together to buy the, the Jose Bogola book because I think it's over 20 pounds. 
There's a saying from Jesus' time, from Jesus' culture. It's a kind of blessing spoken over disciples who were training to be rabbis. And it's this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. What does that mean? May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Well, it wasn't just about listening to them. And it wasn't just about watching the things that they did. It wasn't even about their followers admiring them or celebrating who they are or wanting to be with them. It was much, much more than that. It was about staying so close to your rabbi, literally following every movement, that you copied everything that they did. Everything. You became like them in every way. So when your rabbi sits down to eat, you would sit down to eat. When your rabbi gets up to go, you would get up to go. When your rabbi washes, you would wash. You would do everything that they do. Rabbis were famous for spontaneous praise. They would, oh, I bless you, Lord, for you have provided this wonderful meal. And the the follower would say, I will bless you, Lord, because you have provided this wonderful meal. They would do it straight away because they were getting used to doing everything that their rabbi did. So when the rabbi went to the toilet, they all went to the toilet. (laughs) It's how it works. When I was uh, looking into this, I even uh, heard one person comment that what... There was a time when a rabbi came out of the toilet and said, Lord, I bless you for there are holes in our bodies. And so all the disciples came out and said, Lord, I bless you for the holes in our bodies. And it's ridiculous. But literally they would follow everything because the desire was to be like their rabbi. That's just incredible. When a rabbi sought to help someone, his followers would immediately jump in following every action, so that by the end of the day, they were covered in whatever dust the work of their leader kicked up along the way. So metaphorically, you would be cut, people would be able to recognize you because you were covered in the work that your master had been doing. So it's not just about walking along the dusty streets and what's on their shoes being kicked up behind them and you get covered that way. It's about working at their elbow. I remember being working on a building site when I was about 18 um, in, in, in Israel. This was on the summit of Mount Carmel. And when we went over to work with this um, organization called CNJ, uh, we worked in a guest house, guest house called Stella Carmel. And when they knew some fine, strapping young men were coming to work with them, they decided this was the moment they had to renovate the kitchen. Because <laughs> uh, they had some cheap labor. Um, I've, got, I've got a picture. There's me. It hasn't come out very well. I'm the middle one with the necklace. That's me at 18. Oh, yeah. I like to think I improved with age. Uh, so, that was, uh, that was my, my, the guy in the fetching brown shirt. That's my friend Mike, who I was at, uh, at Stella Carmel with. And, and we were the labour. I've got another picture. You can't even see that. He just about see his spiky dreadlocks at the top in the line. That was how dusty it got in that room. The fact that you can't see him illustrates something. Because when we got there, 
there was a foreman that was uh, leading this project for memory fitting called Mike Hirsch. Now, Mike Hirsch was from Colorado, and he was just the most amazing mentor ever. He was brilliant. And what, what he'd do is he'd bring us into the room that we were going to rip up. Everything had been cleared, but we had to put in new services into the floor, new drains and things like that. And he would hire these enormous pieces of equipment, and then he would give them to us and just let us do it. And we were 18. So I remember the first day of going in, we must have been there for about two days only. A bit of orientation, and then we were straight into this work. And so we turned up, and he just took out this massive petrol cutter. And over here, the discs are about 12 inches. This was like about a 15-inch disc, something you get in the Middle East. And I remember him firing it up. And then he just sort of handed it to us. And there were some lines on the floor. He said, cut them, six inches deep. And I remember thinking, does he know that we don't know what we're doing? Uh, and he also bought this massive pneumatic drill, you know, road working drill. <laughs> like that. It weighed an absolute ton. And so one of us had to cut down the, the channels and the other one had to rip up the bits in between. And he just left us to it. We thought this was hilarious. And I remember you had to really sort of put your elbow into your knee to get this cutter to go down because if it bit into the concrete, it would kick you so hard you'd nearly fall across the room. So you had to really anchor your body and just try and not wiggle because if you wiggle, it, it bites and you're off. I loved it. Now I know that when you do that and you're using a disc cutter, it helps for your mate to be pouring a bit of water because it keeps the dust levels down. But then we didn't know that. So we the room just filled and filled and filled with dust. And we've got our masks on, we've got uh, our breathing apparatus, we've got ear defenders, but we just kept cracking on and cracking on and see if we could get through this trench. And I remember Mike Hirsch used to uh, stick his head around the door from time to time just to see we were still alive. And then he'd go back and crack on with what he was doing. And by the end of the session, when, when we came to a break time, he'd say, right guys, down tools. We'd put our tools down and we'd come up and we were just head to toe, white, with concrete dust. Now, when we went in there, we all had different clothes on. You could tell who we were. When we came out, you could barely tell the difference of who was who, sort of. Well, he was about five foot with a beard and bald head, and my friend Mike was very skinny with dreadlocks. But apart from that, we looked identical when we came out because we were the same. That's what it means to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. You're so covered head to toe in the same work that it's almost impossible to distinguish between you. Because you can just tell you spent time doing the same things and being the same person as your rabbi. It was an amazing time. That's what I want. I want to be covered in the dust of my rabbi. Jesus, to the point where I look just like him. That when people encounter me, they can tell that I've been with Jesus. Because the first disciples of Jesus were known exactly in this way. Why don't you turn to Acts and chapter 4. Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest followers got themselves arrested again. The priests, this is uh, Acts 4 and from verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. 
They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming that Jesus, uh, proclaiming, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John because it was evening and they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Who does that remind you of? The next day, the rulers, the leaders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? They just caused the lame man to walk. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that, is, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They were covered in the dust of their rabbi. They had become just like him. Even their enemies recognized this. So in just three short years, they'd gone from being obscure, unimpressive teenage fishermen to unmistakable imitations of Jesus himself. That is a steep learning curve. In fact, Jesus took ordinary people through a training program that was perhaps the most effective development program in history. This was amazing. How? How on earth did Jesus do that? Take these, these uh, second-rate fishermen and make them people that, that every, even their enemies recognized were so much like Jesus. Well, it begins with a call to follow. And I need us to understand what this call was really all about. We're going to look at Mark in chapter 1. So why don't you turn there, verses 14 to 20. After John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached... God's good news. The time promised by God had come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. One day, as Jesus was walking along by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come and follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and they followed him. A little further up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat, preparing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Does anyone think that sounds weird? 
Why do they just drop their nets and follow Jesus? Yeah, this was their livelihood. This was their family business, the family trade. And yet, as soon as this guy, Jesus, comes walking up the beach and says, follow me, it's like they just drop their nets and go. And I, I'm not sure the, 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 the movies about this moment really help because they show Jesus as this, this amazing, mesmerizing man with flowing hair and piercing blue eyes saying, come and follow me. And of course, they like... <laughs> like robots, drop everything and just follow. And I, and I don't think it was quite like that. I don't think it was as sort of mystical and as, um, yeah, crazy as that. But there's something going on here. Why do they just drop their nets and follow? And why doesn't Zebedee call his sons back? If he's got these great fishermen's sons that are helping him with the family business, why isn't he like, Oi, where are you going? What about the nets? What about tonight's catch? I'm going to be fishing on my own. He doesn't. He just lets them go. What is happening in this moment? Has anyone seen the Numa Dust? The Numa series? Guy, Rob Bell, a few years ago, developed a, a series of short films called Numas. And there's one called Dust. And in that, that Numa Dust, he explains something of what's going on here. He explains the stages of school for Jewish kids. Now... If you were James or John or Simon and Andrew, you would have started your life in a good Jewish family, going through the school process before you became a fisherman. Now, before five, they taught them all kinds of Bible stories, as we might do with our kids. They taught them uh, the stories of the past, and they taught them the importance of the Scriptures. But when they reached about five years old, they would start in their first stage of schooling called Beit Safar. Now, in Beit Safar, the first day of school was amazing because the, the teacher that would be teaching them would take their slates that they were going to write on and he would cover their slates with honey. And before he taught them anything out of the Torah, he would ask them to lick the slates clean. And this was the most exciting thing ever. They didn't have crunchies. <laughs> Honey was the most expensive, the most delightful, the most extravagant, the most brilliant thing you could possibly have in that culture. And so it was a rarity. They hardly ever had it. And now they had a whole slate dripping with honey. And the idea was, is they wanted these kids to know that this was the most important, the most exquisite, the most delightful thing that they could possibly do, was to take in the Word of God. So that they would uh, they'd start with... That the, 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 the word of God may be dripping from their mouths like honey and may taste amazing for their life. And they've treasured it in that way. What a great way to start school. In Beit Safar, they would memorize the first five books of the Bible by the age of ten. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized by the age of ten. Now you might say, man, kids must have been different back then. <laughs> well, I'm not so sure they are, actually. I think our kids have got a tremendous capacity to learn. I remember being in that kind of age band, and some of my friends knew of literally every single pixel and detail on the whole of Super Mario Brothers. 
And they could, at every single level, they know everything that was going on, every mushroom that was going to enter the screen at any one point, they knew exactly when to jump, when to move, whatever, because they were obsessed with it. It was the same with Sonic the Hedgehog. You know, people knew everything about that. And there was just so much detail on there, yet they, it was all memorised. And which of us that are in our 30s doesn't remember the whole theme tune to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? <laughs> Come on. We've got brains that are able to absorb this stuff. We just absorb different stuff. I remember being able to quote the entire script of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Because when I was ill, that was my Pauly film. Does anyone have a Pauly film? When you're ill, you go back and watch the same film. But when I was about... Sound of Music. <laughs> there you go. Each to their own. Brilliant. I think Mary was quite into that as well. What, this was when I was sort of seven or eight. I knew the whole of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And actually, we've got a tremendous ability to memorise. Well, anyway, these kids, they would know the whole of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, most of them, by the age of ten, except for the ones that didn't quite make it. But if you made it, and you were the best in your village, you could move on to the next stage, which was called Beit Talmud. And from ages uh, ten to fourteen years, you'd learn the whole of the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. <coughs> so the law and all the history books, and the prophets, everything from Genesis to Malici, the Italian prophet. <laughs> all the way through. And you'd also learn the oral traditions as well. So there was tons and tons of extra stuff, even outside of the Bible, and you'd learn all of that memorised by 14. And if you were the best of the best, you might go on to the next level, which was called Beit Midrash. And at this point, you would seek out a rabbi that you most admired. And by the way, rabbis were the coolest people ever in that time. They were like the celebrities. They were, everybody wanted to be like the rabbis. They would do crazy things to try and illustrate the word of God. They'd set things on fire and smash things. And, and the kids loved them. And they were just seen as absolute celebrities. When a rabbi came to a village, the whole village turned out to hear what they wanted to say. There was hardly any of them. And they were like top of the tree. It was the, it was the highest position you could ever hope to achieve as a Ju young Jewish boy. I'm sorry for the girls. They were kind of seen a little bit second rate at the time. But that was, the, that was the, uh, the pinnacle. And you would go to a rabbi and you would ask that rabbi you'd be to, if you could be a follower. And they would grill you. They would take you through the worst possible grilling of the scriptures. Because what they do is this. They fire a question at you to see if you knew something in the scriptures. And in order to show the rabbi what you knew, you wouldn't just quote the scripture what you do is you, sh you would show them that you understand the scripture by mentioning something to do with the scripture before and the scripture after, but in the form of a question back to the rabbi. And then they would come back on that and they would do this for hours, flying questions back and forth. And if that's how good you've got to be, mind-blowingly good. And that's stuff to do with the oral tradition and the whole of the Hebrew scriptures. So if you, you do that back and forth for a long time, and if you were the best of the best of the best of the best, the, the rabbi might say to you, okay, take my yoke upon you. You can follow me. Okay? And they were in. From that point forth, they were training as rabbis. If you were not good enough, if, if you were pretty amazing, and you had it really together, but you... 
you didn't have quite what it took to be like that rabbi. They, they say to you, look, you're good, but you're afraid you're not good enough. Go home and ply your trade. Okay? That is the levels of it. So I want you to understand what's riding on this moment for any young student that has come all the way first through the first three levels and what significance and power there are in those words, follow me. Everything changed in the world of those young people. Everything became possible for that young person. The moment a rabbi took them on and said, basically, yes, I think they've got what it takes. They can be like me. From that point, they take a whole new status in the community because everyone would know that they were the specially selected ones for rabbinical life. Now can you understand why Peter and James and, and John and Andrew just dropped their nets and followed? You see, when Jesus was walking up the beach, they weren't following another rabbi, which basically said they didn't make the cut, they didn't make the stages. They were the beating. They were the ones that had been told to go home and ply your trade. So when Jesus came walking up the beach and called to them and says, come follow me, this was a massive moment for these young men. Can you understand why Zebedee didn't call them back? It's like, it's like a, a dad on a market store selling fruit and veg in the heart of Manchester who has just had his son come to work with him because he's dropped out of school and then somebody coming up to him and saying, how would you like to play for Manchester United? The dad would just be over the moon, unless he was a City fan. He would be over the moon <laughs> that his son had got this break. He wouldn't be saying, no, come back, I've got potatoes to carry to cars. He'd be saying, son, you're the best thing ever. This is amazing. You know, if Zebedee was around in our day, he'd probably got a t-shirt printed saying, ask me, ask me why my sons aren't with me today. Because he'd want the whole community to know that his sons had made the cut, that a rabbi thought that they were good enough. It was a huge moment. Now, when a student agreed to follow the rabbi, they would accept that rabbi's particular interpretation of the Torah, which is the law of Moses. And then the corresponding life that that interpretation demanded would then be lived out amongst them as a community. This was understood in the terms of taking the rabbi's yoke upon them. The rabbi would actively say, take my yoke upon you, my interpretation of the law and its implications for life. Total life imitation of the rabbi. The aim of the rabbi was to spread their yoke, their understanding of life and their interpretation of the law as, as far and as wide as they could in one generation. And so from that point of receiving the yoke of the rabbi, nothing of the rabbi's lifestyle was off limits. They were encouraged to copy and have a go at everything the rabbi does and says in order that they may very quickly be able to live the life and teach others how to live the life under their interpretation. When you understand this, that this is what discipleship was in the first century, other scriptures seem to come to life. Look at this one. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you. I want you to take everything that I am, everything that I believe, all of my interpretation of the scriptures and the lifestyle that goes with it, in every detail, take it upon you because I believe that you can do what I can do. That is profound. Eugene Peterson put it a different way. It's on the wall. He says, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I love that verse. That's why it's on the wall. <laughs> it's amazing. Amazing. Jesus wants us to be the ones who are the privileged ones that hear those profound words. Take my yoke upon you. What about this one? Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. He goes on to say, he'll do even greater things than these. Jesus, like every rabbi in his day, has full expectation that his followers will do everything that Jesus demonstrates in his ministry. Everything in the Gospels. And the faith of the rabbi in his followers becomes the confidence in the followers themselves. Yeah, the faith of the rabbi in his followers becomes the confidence of the followers themselves. The fact that the rabbi believes that these followers can do and can be just like their rabbi invests the followers with incredible confidence because the rabbi believes I can do it. From the moment the rabbi says those precious words, follow me, the followers step out in confidence because the rabbi has total faith that they can do what he does. And so to refuse to step out is a question of the judgment of the rabbi. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to say, I don't believe you. When you look at me and you see that I can be like you, I'm not sure about that, so I'm not going to try. <coughs> There's no room for that as disciples in Jesus' day. You had to do whatever you saw the rabbi doing. So when you get this, you, you begin to understand other parts of the Bible as well. What about Peter stepping out of the boat? This is in Matthew 14. Let me just tell you the story if you're not familiar with it. In Matthew chapter 14, there's this moment where the disciples are all in a boat. They are moving and going across the lake and the wind picks up and the waves pick up and they're straining at the oars. And while they're trying to get to the other side of the lake, they see Jesus coming towards them, walking on the water. And at first, they think it's a ghost, so they really freak out and, and they, they're, they're terrified because of what they're seeing. And until Peter pipes up, he calls to Jesus and Jesus says, don't be afraid, it is me. And then Jesus, Peter says, well if it's really you, tell me to come to you on the water. Interestingly, this is a bit of trivia, but 
rabbinical trivia. <laughs> Around this time, what they would often do is they'd have a whole bunch of teenagers in this training group, but they'd also have one 20-something in the group as well, who was expected to be the person that went first, who would stick around. Peter was probably that 20-something amongst the 12. He's probably in his mid-20s. Why would he, we think that? Well, Peter's the only one that we know is married. Remember, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And in that culture, you were expected to be married around about your early 20s if you were a man. In your, uh, about 13, 14 if you were a woman, but in your early 20s if you were a man. So Peter, being a good Jew, would have got married around about 20, 21, 22. He's the only person amongst the disciples that was probably married. Probably meaning that all of the others were younger than that. These were teenagers. These were dropout teenagers, which is encouraging for all of us. <laughs> so Peter did the decent thing as the one that's supposed to go first. He's in this boat. He's, they're all terrified. Who's going to say to Jesus, okay, if it's really you, then tell me to come to you on the water because he knows that if his rabbi tells him to do something and if that is really his rabbi walking on the water, then his rabbi believes he can do it as well. That is the confidence that Peter steps out of the boat with. Where is, where is Peter's faith? Is it in Jesus? Kind of. Is it in, in himself? Kind of, but it's more specific than that. When Peter gets out of the boat and walks towards Jesus and he begins to doubt and he begins to sink, what is it that he's doubting that makes him sink? Well, he's not doubting Jesus because Jesus is still floating. He knows that Jesus can do this because Jesus is standing on the water. Does he doubt himself? Maybe. It's a bit of a crazy thing to do, to get out and walk on the water. It's not quite yet either. When he began to sink... Jesus reached out and caught him and rebuked him and said, Why? You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Jesus rebuked Peter. And it sounds harsh to me, considering what he's just done. He's just exercised pretty mind-blowing faith in my book. But it makes sense if you understand that Peter had received the complete confidence of his master to do everything he saw Jesus doing. So when Jesus rebuked Peter, it's as if he was saying... Peter, we've already settled this. this. This is already a done deal. I wouldn't have called you to be my follower if I wasn't sure you could do everything that I do. Jesus rebuked Peter because he began to doubt Jesus' faith in Peter. That's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? When Peter doubted he was basically saying to Jesus, I don't believe your assessment of me. His, he questions Jesus' judgment. Jesus was offended because it's his call as to whether Peter is able to do it or not. Do you understand? This is the big point of my whole son. It's this. Jesus has faith in us. So often we read passages like this and we question ourselves about having enough faith in Jesus. Have I got enough faith in Jesus to, to, to step out of the boat of my own life and to walk on water? Do I, do, I, do I trust him enough? Do I think he's wonderful enough? 
But that's not really the question here. The question here is, does Jesus believe in Peter? Should we spend less time asking, have I got enough faith in Jesus? And more time reminding ourselves that Jesus has faith in us. Jesus wouldn't have called you to be his follower if he didn't believe that you had what it takes to be just like him. Our whole relationship as followers of Jesus is to be based on that fact that he has asked me to follow because he believes that I have what it takes to be like him. That changes everything. For me, that changes my whole approach to my faith. And I'm much more likely to grow as a disciple if I truly believe that Jesus believes in me and that he believes that I can be like him. I'm more likely to hang on his words and to hear them for me personally if I really believe that Jesus has called me to be a follower of my rabbi. Does that make sense? I'm more likely to seek his guidance every day and in all the situations of my life, to, to, to want to know what my rabbi thinks about this. Want to know what my leader would do in this situation. What would Jesus do? I'm more likely to do that. And I'm going to feel so much more freedom to try anything I see Jesus doing as well. Even the supernatural stuff. Knowing that he fully believes that I can learn to do them. significance of living the full life of Jesus of Nazareth was handed to us the moment he said, come, follow me. Do you believe it? Do you believe he has great faith in you? <coughs> Does it, do you believe that when he looks at you and your life that he has genuine faith that you can be like him, but in your context, in every way. Well, if not, maybe this will help. Jesus, when he called his disciples, he goes to them and calls them to follow. This is really significant as well, because you see, no other rabbi would ever need to go to the disciples to call them to follow. They were such, so kind of celebrated and eminent in that culture. They could just trust that the best of the best of the best would seek them out. So when Jesus goes and walks up that beach in Galilee and calls James, John, Peter, Andrew and all the others, he's going to them, which is a complete break with that culture and tradition. He bypasses the normal system. He heads straight for these young people who are not the best. They're not following rabbis. They didn't make it through the training. They're busy plying their family trade. And he takes these average B-team kids. And then three years later, he sits down and says, Okay, are you ready? Very, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. And they will do greater things than these. Now go make disciples of all the nations. Three years later. That's incredible. And they do it. They start a movement that we are the benefactors of today. These, these teens. They go and do it. 
And the, the way that they could do it was by putting their trust in Jesus, who said this. You did not choose me, which is unheard of. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I love that. Don't you love that? He reminded them often, you didn't choose me. You're not here because you're the best of the best of the best. That is a comfort to me. And he reminds them that Jesus himself went to them. So this is not just Jesus' take on Calvinism. You know what that means. About whether we're chosen or not. This is Jesus talking about the rabbinical system, saying, I chose you. I, I broke every tradition and I came after you. I called you. Why? Because I saw that there was fruit in your life that was going to come forth. Put your trust in what Jesus sees in you. That's what he was really saying to them. And I think that many of us have missed this understanding of what discipleship is. It's, it's a wonderful privilege. And it's intensely practical. Many of us have settled for a kind of discipleship that admires Jesus from a distance. We appreciate him. And we love him for what we see him doing. But we've never felt any expectation from the Lord to watch closely and then to try everything. And maybe we've never let that sense of chosenness really sink into us. True discipleship, as Jesus understood, understood it, was to learn by doing. Okay. I was passed on an article from Simon Phipps um, about how we learn. And I want to just finish with this. 70, 20, 10 and discipleship. Within learning and development, there is a model that we use to explain how people learn in the workplace, the 70-20-10 model. The model says this, that 70% of our learning occurs through practical means, through people just doing their jobs, experimenting, risking, failing and reflecting. 20% of learning occurs through social interaction with others, coaching, mentoring, blogs, social media. 10% of our learning occurs through formal learning, which is like courses or e-learning, etc. The numbers themselves are very contested, and let's be honest, research will never lead to perfectly round numbers like this, but for me, the exact numbers are not really the point. The point is... People learn best by using a variety of methods, but people learn most by actually doing things, practically, by risk, experimentation, failure, and reflection. For me, this is what the 70-20-10 model has to teach us about discipleship. As Christians, we spend so much time and effort on books, seminars, sermons, Bible studies, and conferences that we forget that discipleship is primarily about doing Doing the work that we've been called to do. Loving people, caring for people, serving people. 
It's through this doing, this serving, that we learn who God is and that God is love. It's true that we are human beings and not human doings, that our value is not determined by what we do. But if we want to move forward in discipleship, if, if we want to be, truly be learners, then we must step into the realm of doing. I understand that for many people this is a difficult realm, for those with depression or social anxiety or physical disabilities. But I believe that each of us, in small, persistent ways, can exemplify love where we are and can make someone's day a bit brighter and share the love and hope that lives within each of us. So while the 20 and the 10 are important, the seminars and the conferences and the books and the sermons, it's the 70, the doing, that truly helps us to become better disciples. That's what this series is all about. It's about becoming doers. It's about looking at some of Jesus' habits, some of his ways of being, some of the things that he loves to do. We're going to pick out some of the, 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 the threads that run through the Gospels that really capture something of the way Jesus likes to operate. And we're going to look deeply into those things with a view to being doers of the word because our rabbi believes that everything we see him doing is exactly what we can be doing ourselves. We're going to seek to learn his heels by imitating him in the belief that he's called us to follow. So, over the next couple of months, my prayer is that you may feel the call of Jesus to you afresh. Something which may be quite distant in your past, may it be refreshed in you, that call to be a true disciple of Christ, a true follower of Jesus. May you try things that you've never tried before. You might be there out on the edge of the dart thinking, am I ready for this? <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> but may, when you see how Jesus lives, may you try things. May you be encouraged not just to think Stand at a distance and admire Jesus from afar, but to understand that this is the core on my life, is to become like Jesus in every way. And may you find ways to put what you see in Jesus into practice as quick as you can. And may you find yourselves covered in the dust of your rabbi. Amen.